Chapter 4, Part 1 of the Formation of Vegetable Molds Through the Action of Worms with Observations on Their Habits. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 1 The Part Which Worms Have Played in the Burial of Ancient Buildings. The Accumulation of Rubbish on the Sites of Great Cities Independent of the Action of Worms. The Burial of a Roman Villa at Abinger. The Floors and Walls Penetrated by Worms subsidence of a modern pavement the buried pavement at Bolio abbey roman villas at chedworth and braiding the remains of the roman town of silchester the nature of the debris by which the remains are covered the penetration of the tessellated floors and walls by worms subsidence of the floors thickness of the mould the old roman city of roxeter thickness of the mould Depth of the foundations of some of the buildings. Conclusion Archaeologists are probably not aware how much they owe to worms for the preservation of many objects. Gold, coins, gold ornaments, stone implements, etc., if dropped on the surface of the ground, will infallibly be buried by the castings of worms in a few years, and will thus be safely preserved, until the land at some future time is turned up. For instance, Many years ago, a grass field was ploughed on the northern side of the Severn, not far from Shrewsbury, and a surprising number of iron arrowheads were found at the bottom of the furrows, which, as Mr. Blakeway, a local antiquary, believed, were relics of the Battle of Shrewsbury in the year 1403, and no doubt had been originally left strewed on the battlefield. In the present chapter, I shall show that not only implements, etc., are thus preserved, but that the floors and the remains of many ancient buildings in England have been buried so effectually, in large part through the action of worms, that they have been discovered in recent times solely through various accidents. The enormous beds of rubbish, several yards in thickness, which underlie many cities such as Rome, Paris, and London, the lower ones being of great antiquity, are not here referred to, as they have not been in any way acted on by worms. When we consider how much matter is daily brought into a great city for building, fuel, clothing, and food, and that in old times when the roads were bad and the work of the scavenger was neglected, a comparatively small amount was carried away. We may agree with Elie de Beaumont, who, in discussing this subject, says, Pour une voiture de matériaux qui en sort, on y en fait en tressant. Footnote. Leçon de géologie pratique. 1845, page 142. End of footnote. Nor should we overlook the effects of fires, the demolition of old buildings, and the removal of rubbish to the nearest vacant space. Abinger, Surrey. Late in the autumn of 1876, the ground in an old farmyard at this place was dug to a depth of two to two and a half feet, and the workmen found various ancient remains. This led Mr. T. H. Ferrer of Abinger Hall to have an adjoining ploughed field searched. On a trench being dug, a layer of concrete, still partly covered with tesserae, small red tiles, and surrounded on two sides by broken-down walls, was soon discovered. It is believed, footnote, a short account of this discovery was published in The Times of January 2, 1878, and a fuller account in The Builder, January 5, 1878. End of footnote that this room formed part of the atrium or reception room of a Roman villa. 
the walls of two or three other small rooms were afterwards discovered. Many fragments of pottery, other objects, and coins of several Roman emperors, dating from 133 to 361, and perhaps to 375 A.D., were likewise found. Also a halfpenny of George I, 1715. The presence of this latter coin seems an anomaly, but no doubt it was dropped on the ground during the last century, and since then there has been ample time for its burial under a considerable depth of the castings of worms. From the different dates of the Roman coins, we may infer that the building was long inhabited. It was probably ruined and deserted 1,400 or 1,500 years ago. I was present during the commencement of the excavations, August 20, 1877, and Mr. Ferrer had two deep trenches dug at opposite ends of the atrium, so that I might examine the nature of the soil near the remains. The field sloped from east to west at an angle of about seven degrees, and one of the two trenches showed in the accompanying section, figure eight, was at the upper or eastern end. Legend figure eight. Section through the foundations of a buried Roman villa at Abinger. A.A. Vegetable mold. B. Dark earth full of stones, 13 inches in thickness. C. Black mold. D. Broken mortar. E. Black mold. F.F. Undisturbed subsoil. G. Tesserae. H. Concrete. I. Nature unknown. W. Buried wall. End of legend. The diagram is on a scale of one-twentieth of an inch to an inch, but the trench, which was between four and five feet broad, and in parts above five feet deep, has necessarily been reduced out of all proportion. The fine mould over the floor of the atrium varied in thickness from eleven to sixteen inches, and on the side of the trench in the section was a little over thirteen inches. After the mould had been removed, the floor appeared as a whole moderately level but it sloped in parts at an angle of one degree, and in one place near the outside, at as much as eight degrees thirty minutes. The wall surrounding the pavement was built of rough stones, and was twenty-three inches in thickness, where the trench was dug. Its broken summit was here thirteen inches, but in another part fifteen inches, beneath the surface of the field, being covered by this thickness of mould. In one spot, however, it rose to within six inches of the surface, on two sides of the room, where the junction of the concrete floor with the bounding walls could be carefully examined, there was no crack or separation. This trench afterwards proved to have been dug within an adjoining room, eleven feet by eleven feet six inches in size, the existence of which was not even suspected whilst I was present. On the side of the trench, farthest from the buried wall, W, the mould varied from nine to fourteen inches in thickness. It rested on a mass, B, twenty-three inches thick of blackish earth, including many large stones. Beneath this was the thin bed of very black mould, C, then a layer of earth full of fragments of mortar, D, and then another thin bed, about three inches thick, E, of very black mould, which rested on the undisturbed subsoil, F, of firm yellowish argillaceous sand. The twenty-three-inch bed, B, was probably made above ground, as this would have brought up the floor of the room to a level with that of the atrium. The two thin beds of black mould at the bottom of the trench evidently marked two former land surfaces. Outside the walls of the northern room, many bones, ashes, oyster shells, broken pottery, and an entire pot were subsequently found at a depth of sixteen inches beneath the surface. 
The second trench was dug on the western or lower side of the villa. The mould was here only six and one-half inches in thickness, and it rested on a mass of fine earth full of stones, broken tiles, and fragments of mortar, thirty-four inches in thickness beneath which was the undisturbed sand. Most of this earth had probably been washed down from the upper part of the field, and the fragments of stones, tiles, etc., must have come from the immediately adjoining ruins. It appears at first sight a surprising fact that this field of light sandy soil should have been cultivated and ploughed during many years, and that not a vestige of these buildings should have been discovered. No one even suspected that the remains of a Roman villa lay hidden close beneath the surface. But the fact is less surprising when it is known that the field, as the bailiff believed, had never been ploughed to a greater depth than four inches. It is certain that when the land was first ploughed, the pavement and the surrounding broken walls must have been covered by at least four inches of soil, for otherwise the rotten concrete floor would have been scored by the ploughshare, the tesserae torn up, and the tops of the old walls knocked down. When the concrete and tesserae were first cleared over a space of fourteen by nine feet, the floor, which was coated with downtrodden earth, exhibited no signs of having been penetrated by worms. And although the overlying fine mould closely resembled that which in many places has certainly been accumulated by worms, yet it seemed hardly possible that this mould could have been brought up by worms from beneath the apparently sound floor. It seemed also extremely improbable that the thick walls surrounding the room, and still united to the concrete, had been undermined by worms, and had thus been caused to sink, being afterwards covered up by their castings. I therefore at first concluded that all the fine mould above the ruins had been washed down from the upper parts of the field, but we shall soon see that this conclusion was certainly erroneous, though much fine earth is known to be washed down from the upper part of the field, in its present ploughed state, during heavy rains. Although the concrete floor did not at first appear to have been anywhere penetrated by worms, yet by the next morning little cakes of trodden-down earth had been lifted up by worms over the mouths of seven burrows, which passed through the softer parts of the naked concrete, or between the interstices of the tesserae. On the third morning, twenty-five burrows were counted, and by suddenly lifting up the little cakes of earth, four worms were seen in the act of quickly retreating. Two castings were thrown up, during the third night, on the floor, and these were of large size. The season was not favourable for the full activity of worms, and the weather had lately been hot and dry, so that most of the worms now lived at a considerable depth. In digging the two trenches, many open burrows and some worms were encountered at between thirty and forty inches beneath the surface, but at a greater depth they became rare. One worm, however, was cut through at four and one-half, and another at fifty-one and one-half inches beneath the surface. A fresh, humus-lined burrow was also met with at a depth of fifty-seven, and another at sixty-five and one-half inches. At greater depths than this, neither burrows nor worms were seen. As I wished to learn how many worms lived beneath the floor of the atrium, a space of about fourteen by nine feet, Mr. Ferrer was so kind as to make observations for me during the next seven weeks, by which time the worms in the surrounding country were in full activity and were working near the surface. It is very improbable that worms should have migrated from the adjoining field into the small space of the atrium, after the superficial mould in which they prefer to live had been removed. We may therefore conclude that the burrows and the castings, which were seen here during the ensuing seven weeks, 
were the work of former inhabitants of the space. I will now give a few extracts from Mr. Ferrer's notes. August 26th, 1877, that is, five days after the floor had been cleared. On the previous night there had been some heavy rain, which washed the surface clean, and now the mouths of forty burrows were counted. Parts of the concrete were seen to be solid, and had never been penetrated by worms, and here the rainwater lodged. September 5th. Tracks of worms, made during the previous night, could be seen on the surface of the floor, and five or six vermiform castings had been thrown up. These were defaced. September 12th. During the last six days, the worms have not been active, though many castings have been ejected in the neighboring fields. But on this day, the earth was a little raised over the mouths of the burrows, or castings ejected, at ten fresh points. These were defaced. It should be understood that when a fresh burrow is spoken of, this generally means only that an old burrow has been reopened. Mr. Ferrer was repeatedly struck with the pertinacity with which the worms reopened their old burrows, even when no earth was ejected from them. I have often observed the same fact, and generally the mouths of the burrows are protected by an accumulation of pebbles, sticks, or leaves. Mr. Ferrer likewise observed that the worms living beneath the floor of the atrium often collected coarse grains of sand and such little stones as they could find round the mouths of their burrows. September 13th. Soft, wet weather. The mouths of the burrows were reopened, or castings were ejected, at thirty-one points. These were all defaced. September 14th. Thirty-four fresh holes or castings, all defaced. September 15th. Forty-four fresh holes, only five castings, all defaced. September 18th. Forty-three fresh holes, eight castings, all defaced. The number of castings on the surrounding fields was now very large. September 19th. Forty holes, eight castings, all defaced. September 22nd. Forty-three holes, only a few fresh castings, all defaced. September 23rd. Forty-four holes, eight castings. September 25th. Fifty holes, no record of the number of castings. October 13th. Sixty-one holes, no record of the number of castings. After an interval of three years, Mr. Ferrer, at my request, again looked at the concrete floor, and found the worms still at work. Knowing what great muscular power worms possess, and seeing how soft the concrete was in many parts, I was not surprised at its having been penetrated by their burrows, but it is a more surprising fact that the mortar between the rough stones of the thick walls surrounding the rooms was found by Mr. Ferrer to have been penetrated by worms. On August 26th, that is, five days after the ruins had been exposed, he observed four open burrows on the broken summit of the eastern wall, W of figure 8, and on September 15th, other burrows similarly situated were seen. It should also be noted that in the perpendicular side of the trench, which was much deeper than is represented in figure 8, three recent burrows were seen, which ran obliquely far down beneath the base of the old wall. We thus see that many worms lived beneath the floor and the walls of the atrium at the time when the excavations were made, and that they afterwards almost daily brought up earth to the surface from a considerable depth. There is not the slightest reason to doubt that worms have acted in this manner ever since the period when the concrete was sufficiently decayed to allow them to penetrate it, and even before that period they would have lived beneath the floor as soon as it became pervious to rain, so that the soil beneath was kept damp. 
The floor and the walls must therefore have been continually undermined, and the fine earth must have been heaped on them during many centuries, perhaps for a thousand years. If the burrows beneath the floors and walls, which it is probable were formerly as numerous as they now are, had not collapsed in the course of time, in the manner formerly explained, the underlying earth would have been riddled with passages like a sponge. And as this was not the case, we may feel sure that they have collapsed. The inevitable result of such collapsing during successive centuries will have been the slow subsidence of the floor and of the walls, and their burial beneath the accumulated worm castings. The subsidence of a floor, whilst it still remains nearly horizontal, may at first appear improbable, but the case presents no more real difficulty than that of loose objects strewed on the surface of a field, which, as we have seen, become buried several inches beneath the surface in the course of a few years, though still forming a horizontal layer parallel to the surface. The burial of the paved and level path on my lawn, which took place under my own observation, is an analogous case. Even those parts of the concrete floor, which the worms could not penetrate, would almost certainly have been undermined, and would have sunk, like the great stones at Leith Hill Place and Stonehenge, for the soil would have been damp beneath them. But the rate of sinking of the different parts would not have been quite equal, and the floor was not quite level. The foundations of the boundary walls lie, as shown in the section, at a very small depth beneath the surface. They would therefore have tended to subside at nearly the same rate as the floor, but this would not have occurred if the foundations had been deep, as in the case of some other Roman ruins presently to be described. Finally, we may infer that a large part of the fine vegetable mould which covered the floor and the broken-down walls of this villa, in some places to a thickness of sixteen inches, was brought up from below by worms. From facts hereafter to be given, there can be no doubt that some of the finest earth thus brought up will have been washed down the sloping surface of the field during every heavy shower of rain. If this had not occurred, a greater amount of mould would have accumulated over the ruins than that now present. But, beside the castings of worms and some earth brought up by insects and some accumulation of dust, much fine earth will have been washed over the ruins from the upper parts of the field, since it has been under cultivation, and from over the ruins to the lower parts of the slope, the present thickness of the mould being the resultant of these several agencies. I may here append a modern instance of the sinking of a pavement, communicated to me in 1871 by Mr. Ramsay, Director of the Geological Survey of England. A passage without a roof, seven feet in length by three feet two inches in width, led from his house into the garden, and was paved with slabs of Portland stone. Several of these slabs were sixteen inches square, others larger, and some a little smaller. This pavement had subsided about three inches, along the middle of the passage, and two inches on each side, as could be seen by the lines of cement by which the slabs had been originally joined to the walls. The pavement had thus become slightly concave along the middle, but there was no subsidence at the end close to the house. Mr. Ramsay could not account for this sinking, until he observed that castings of black mould were frequently ejected along the lines of junction between the slabs, and these castings were regularly swept away. The several lines of junction, including those with the lateral walls, were altogether thirty-nine feet two inches in length. The pavement did not present the appearance of ever having been renewed, and the house was believed to have been built about eighty-seven years ago. Considering all these circumstances, 
Mr. Ramsay does not doubt that the earth brought up by the worms since the pavement was first laid down, or rather, since the decay of the mortar allowed the worms to burrow through it, and therefore, within a much shorter time than the eighty-seven years, had sufficed to cause the sinking of the pavement to the above amount, except close to the house, where the ground beneath would have been kept nearly dry. End of chapter 4, part 1